Welcome, everybody, to the Illusion of Consensus podcast. I'm Professor Jay Bhattacharya. I'm here with Natalia Murakvar. She is the uh, co-founder of Restore Childhood, an organization uh, founded originally in New York City, but then really sort of all over the United States. Uh, there have been people that have been advocating for open schools, for normal childhood for children. Uh, I'm absolutely delighted to have her here. She is a longtime resident of New York City and also a longtime advocate for children long before the pandemic. Uh, Natalia, thank you for coming. Thank you for, uh, for being on the podcast with me. Thank you. It's an honor. Okay. So, Natalia, I wanted to tell the audience, just introduce you to the audience, and uh, I figured we'd start with a, a point in common that we had, uh, which is that you studied uh, the basically nutrition and the politics of nutrition in in uh, for, in your in your education, you were a student of the sort of the very well known Marion Nestle, who advocated for sort of better food for all Americans, but also specifically for children. Can you can us can you tell us about your background? <clears throat> yes. So I came here as a six year old from the from Ukraine at the time it was the Soviet Union, and my mother was always absolutely obsessed um, with healthy food, fresh food, farmers markets. And that was kind of a a weird, quirky thing that she did in the early 80s and through the 90s, all through my um, childhood and my teen years where she would constantly go to the farmers market and bring back fresh food. And I was like, what's the big deal? Like the grocery store is just around the corner. And she was like, it really matters like where your food is grown and what's in it. So I I kind of grew up with that ethos. And um, I, in my early 30s, I was working at NYU at the Tisch School of the Arts. Um, and I had gone to Italy a couple of times before that. And really that, that you know, idea of, of ingredients and pride and, and cooking and um, uh, geography and, um, and, and, and climate, all of that um, really impacted me when I was there. I never really felt as connected to food as I did in Italy. And um, I saw that there was a program at, N- at NYU that I could participate in that was hosted by the food studies and nutrition department, which Marion Nessel at the time was the head of, she was the director of the program. And so I joined and I went to Italy and studied Mediterranean diet and Mediterranean culture. And, um, and I ended up enrolling in a master's program with Marion. Um, and Marion's background was as a, as an FDA, uh, inspector. She has, um, she's been writing about food for probably like 40 years. Um, she, she used to be at Berkeley. So she, I think she divided her time between NYU and Berkeley, but her course and her primary area of interest is food politics. And um, she wrote a great book with that title, if I remember, which I I think I have. That book came out right around the time I was in graduate school with her. Um, So she, you know, she really was ascendant. And she taught a class called Food Politics. And that was the first place I ever learned about um, the politics of food, what's grown, who gets to grow it, how it's subsidized, this crazy farm bill that was, you know, started around the time of uh, uh, the Great Depression to encourage commodity crops to be grown so that people would not starve. Um, but now has really kind of turned into something that's, you know, a double-edged sword. Now, there's, of course, there's a close connection with food politics and the kind of food that kids eat at school. I mean, because there's a massive 
uh, a program for, for providing free and reduced price school lunches and school breakfast. A lot of kids in this country get uh, a lot of their calories from from schools. Did, what uh, were you were you connected with any of that? Like what what sorts of uh, like ideas did you work with before the pandemic around around schools? So around the time that my daughter was born, um, I started a, a company called Apple to Zucchini, which is still my Twitter handle. I just can't seem to let go of it, um, which was working with family. I worked with a nutritionist. So I'm not a nutritionist. I have a master's in food studies from NYU, which is more of like a liberal arts degree. Um, we did have to take nutrition classes and I enjoyed them very much, but I, 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 I'm not an RD. Uh, or a medical professional. Um, but my partner in Apple to Zucchini is and was. And so together we worked with families to help them decipher food labels and understand like what are better and worse options, how to um, prepare food in bulk at home so that it's cheaper, there's less packaging and your family eats healthier. The importance of sharing food together um, because that's something that I think is often glossed over in this country, like the importance of the dinner table and the conversation and the meals eaten there are priceless and really set children and 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 adults off, you know, f- for good healthy futures. Um, so I mean, for I that, think it's, we- it's inter- interesting to like think back what happened during the pandemic in schools, where I mean, I remember pictures of kids being forced to eat six, 10, like basically isolated in their own pods outdoors with masks very far away from every other kid. Um, that kind of socialization is really important, of course, in the family, as you say, but also for, for, for children. Um, it's where, you, where kids learn to be, to be, you know, sort of learn to be kids together. Uh, and then for food, of course, is an important part of it. But, and they uh, weren't allowed. And when they were inside, I mean, this lasted well into like 2022. When they were inside, they were seated alongside, like in a, in a row, all facing in the same direction, eating and having to look forward instead of, you know, interacting with each other. So this basic, most important thing in a child's life, which is that unstructured period where they get nourishment for their body and their soul was disrupted. And I think that will have lifelong impact. I mean, the fact that they were scared to talk to their friends because they would get in trouble in the lunchroom. <laughs> so, so we're, we're going to get to, we're going to get to that. I still just want to like do this part yeah, by yeah. part. So, just, so let me just, so build up to this. So you're, 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 you're uh, immersed in food politics. You've, you've uh, have a passion now for understanding how food connects to, to like everyday life of people, of course, the health of people, uh, uh, you're, but you live in New York City. You you have a you have a family. You're uh, did you over this time? Did you ever think that you were going to be like a, a, I mean, because a lot of the 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 establishment uh, in the uh, of the public health community was fully on board with this idea that we don't we eat in unhealthy ways, um, and that we uh, that that we need to sort of change the way that we grow food, that we tell people about food, that and and uh, and change our food habits because you know the United States has terrible track record with uh, with chronic disease uh, and and uh, all kinds of sort of bad outcomes from from not a particularly healthy food food environment so uh, I mean I, I mean I, I was in this in this in this world to some extent I mean I, I actually published a bunch of papers on the economics of obesity and I, I remember I mean I didn't it didn't um, I mean because so so like the kinds of advocacy that you're doing before the pandemic it was completely consistent with with, with like basic public health like the public health establishment was, you know, in your camp. If, if anyone, the bad guys were the with a with a big farm, big uh, big agriculture. If, they, if you take it, you can call anybody a bad guy, a big agriculture or or mon- like monetary interest to try to 
put processed foods in front of, of kids or so on, right? That that you were never like a rebel in that sense. No, no, that's true. Um, and and just the revolving door. I mean, the fact that there was no oversight and that the, the, the this farm bill was so it, it continues to be. It's not past tense. Um, it's yeah, still it's still in place, right? And, um, it, it has nothing to do with the nation's health. Um, uh, it's you know, I think of like there's a title of a book, "Overfed and Underfed." Um, and that's very much this country. Um, and you see it when you, you know, you walk around the streets, even here in New York City. Um, but I also joined a uh, food writer here in New York City, probably around, I don't know, seven years ago uh, to start something called the New York City Healthy School Food Alliance, uh, where she had, her name is Andrea Strong. And she now just mostly does like restaurant writing because that's really her passion. But when her kids were little, she saw the types of food that was being served in public school cafeterias and really, you know, kind of tried to advocate for uh, meaningful change and scratch cooking uh, in the cafeterias. And we actually ended up getting on a committee in the New York City Department of Education where we would go once every couple of months to meet with other stakeholders and look at what was proposed for the menus and understand what the logistics were for supplying food for, at the time, it was 1.1 million kids. It's now like under 900,000, I think. So um, and it, the largest school system probably in the world. So that was also really interesting. So, so you had this, you had this like great history of activism in service of public health, in, in service in service of health and public health uh, in, in nutrition space. You had this this connection with New York City schools, um, and uh, of course the public health establishment. You were you were advocating for good public health alongside with what the public health establishment was, was advocating for. I think at the time. Um, and uh, so you're you're set up, I think, in in, in many ways to to understand the politics around what happened in March of 2020 to kids. Um, so, you know, now you were, you were living in New York city, right? At the time. In yeah, March we were in yeah. Um, I remember that time I'm living in California, of course, uh, but my, the, the, the schools closed on March 16th, I think 2020, something like that um, with the, with the lockdowns. And I was actually stunned. I mean, I, th- I thought uh, I didn't realize that public health, had the capacity to close schools all around the country, basically on 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 a on a single order. Uh, now, of course, the single order was issued piecemeal, one by one, from by public health officers everywhere. But they were essentially acting in, in coordinated lockstep with what uh, the lockdown orders, first from the state of emergency declared by President Trump, then later to the the, the, the CDC reinforces it, and and the. Uh, and, and the orders go go across the country. And New York City was like the was an epicenter for for COVID at at the time. Like people were, I know, very 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 scared about COVID. What did you see in the early days of the pandemic with the school closures? Like when they when they announced two weeks, we're going to close the schools for two weeks. That's what they announced here. I, my reaction was, there's no way it's two weeks. It's going to be much much longer. Yeah. And I didn't know what was going to happen to our kids. I didn't know what. I mean, I just knew that we were. We were, I knew for my kids, of course, it was going to be difficult. But I could. I could replace some of the lost learning. But I also knew that there was going to be a tremendous number of people around the country who would have no capacity to uh, to have a, like high quality education for the kids with that single order. What did What did you see in New York City, and what did you think when you first heard the order? Um. Well. I thought the same thing you thought. There's no way this is two weeks. I can't imagine how you can close all these schools and then reopen them and not just reopen them, but also 
give people the confidence. You scared them out of their lives. Like you told them that their kids potentially are going to die. You've told teachers that school is the most dangerous place in the world. How are you going to convince them to come back together? into this building. I mean, masking wasn't even like on the table at that point. Like we had, I didn't even think about that, but I literally didn't understand how that faith would be one. Um, so, I mean, at the time I, I, I saw the danger for adults, um, for older adults in particular, my mother actually was in the hospital at um, Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn at the time for an infection that was they said at the time was not COVID. So I was very, very gravely worried for my father to go back and forth into the hospital and believe it or not, got a construction mask for him and begged him (laughs) to wear this mask. Um, The doctors at the time in the hospital were not wearing it. They were shaking hands. I was kind of like the germaphobe, like, don't touch me. Don't touch my father. Don't touch my mother. Sanitize everything and wear a mask. Um, So I definitely, you know, talk about focus protection. I was focusing on people that I was very, very concerned about. These were people in in their 80s, you know, they were vulnerable to all this. But for the children, I was very concerned about disrupting socialization. I mean, children are not little adults. That's what I spent the last decade saying to people. Um, Vulnerabilities in children are, are very, very different. They're much more um, impacted by, I think, social disruption. Um, a baby only, you know, starts to, you know, sit up at a certain age, walk at a certain age, talk to it at a certain age. Same for teenagers. They need that level of socialization at the right time. You can't make up developmental milestones. And I know that's a cliche, but it's, it's a fact and we're, we're seeing, you know, the after effects. So I was deeply concerned about the fact that um, we were, taking this time out of their lives without really any kind of endpoint. And, um, and to be honest, I never really followed the guidance to the T. We continued to have play dates um, with people who were uncomfortable coming over. We would meet them in the park because common sense told me that if you're outside in a diffuse environment playing amongst grass and the trees, generally it's, it's pretty safe. Just wash your hands afterwards. So, you know, I mean, that's kind of where I was. I wasn't so concerned about lost learning. I was more concerned about lost socialization and this like disruption of normalcy. I think that's really, really important point. Um, in fact, one of the, probably the, the best thing, um, that happened to my family during the pandemic uh, was that my there was a, my 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 kids I had two sons and, and an older daughter uh, the, the sons had a next door neighbor a few doors down that that they played with since they were like you know kindergarten before kindergarten um, and that that family was very scared originally about uh, about COVID and they decided they're going to have a little pod and not let their little kid play with our kids. He's no longer so little. He's like in his like you know early teens back then. It was like I think twelve years old then. Um, and my wife went over and negotiated a thing where like we were a little pod where the and where the the, the 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 their son could come over and play. And that was really important for my kids during the pandemic. Like they they got to they got to have a little touch of normalcy in a very very crazy time. And I completely I mean I agree with you. I mean the learning loss is is a terrible thing. But I agree that the the uh, the interruption of normal social life impacts children in ways that are almost impossible to to uh, to, to 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 recover from. I mean, what well, you can re- I mean, I I hope you can recover from, but like it's just why would you try to interfere with it? 
I, I mean, I've seen these um, before the pandemic. I remember reading this literature about the importance of FaceTime with ch- with little children, you know, with 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 infants. They're, they're, they react to their parents' uh, emotional, their their facial expressions, their their emotions, and it's it's the seeing of the face, this close connection with parents that that allows kids to develop in ways that are that are healthy for them. I learn about social development, emotional connections, uh, and and uh, you know how to how to interact with other other people um, through that process. And, and in fact, even a lot of like language processing is often uh, part of that as well. I mean, the, the the way that people react in their faces reinforces the the, the verbal language that we hear. Um, you know, you can see this with like deaf kids. Uh, a lot of parents would write to me during the pandemic telling me that their child was deaf and that it was really tough for them uh, in, a, in an environment where everyone else was masked up. You couldn't see not just lips, but facial expressions very well. Yeah, so I, nobody I mean, advocated for them. The, the, the deaf organizations never advocated for them. I reached out to many people on, on Twitter who were deaf advocates. And, you know, one person said, well, the deaf community leans hard left. So they're never going to speak out against, you know, the narrative. So there you are. <laughs> we'll talk about politics because uh, I think that's a really important part of the story. Uh, but but well, let's get to that in just a bit because I want to just stay on stay on kids for just a bit. Actually, let's actually let's just jump to politics because that's because uh, you you did actually get involved in the political movement to open schools probably around fall of if I understand like fall of 2020, right? So yeah. tell us tell us what happens. Like you know, spring happens, the schools stay closed the entire time. Fall yeah. the, the summer comes. What I was seeing then was that uh, that we were going to have another lockdown. Like the idea that the, the locked spring lockdowns had s- essentially solved the pandemic was was obviously false, and the fear that you talked about, Natalia, was still there in the air. People were still quite scared about COVID, and there were still rumbles of a lockdown coming. That's actually what, kind of what led to the Great Barrington Declaration in October. Mm-hmm. Um, but in you, in fall of 2020, you you were involved in the advocacy and the the policy, politics around trying to open schools in New York. So tell tell us about that. Well, I, you know, I first started very locally. Uh, Our elementary school in the spring of 2020 was about to embark on a very long, uh, extensive construction project to replace windows and roofs and asbestos abatements galore um, in a very old building. And so during that time, a lot of parents were very concerned about what the environmental exposures their children would have uh, were. So I joined the principal in helping to try to reassure them, like after talking to the school construction authority and bringing in the Mount Sinai Expo Zone people uh, from Mount Sinai here on the east side who talked well, about what is, what, is, what is that? What is the Expo Zone people? Uh, so, so environmental pediatric. Well, expo. So the expo zone is like a term that I really think of, like to frame all health and public health conversations. So it, the expo zone talks about exogenous exposures um, from birth to death. Like I guess it's a companion to the genome, um, and it was I think coined in like 2005 by a scientist named Christopher Wild. And basically, it's kind of like a uh, the dose makes the poison, but what other factors exist? Like adverse childhood experiences are part of it. Stress is part of it. Exposures to chemicals, lead. Um, you know, it, it it looks at you know all of the all of the exposures over time to kind of understand what the actual risks are. And there's 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 a group that that you're part of that that 
tries to make those uh, the sort of the environment and other other factors healthier for for kids and, and then so for yeah. So health. Mount Sinai has an Exposome Institute, okay. um, and it's kind of like an offshoot of environmental health, um, and they have like a, a clinic that sees children who have been exposed to lead. I mean, there's there's I think clinics all over the country. They're called PSUs, Pediatric Environmental Health Units, or something like that. And um, they help families understand, like, you know, if their child was exposed to some acute chemicals or other things, um, they help to contextualize and find, you know, what the remedies are. Um, so I, I had this relationship with them. Um, I, I reached out to them because I was, I was interested in, in that area. I was also interested in the microbiome and how exposures to things that you should, you should seek exposures to diverse microbiome, you know, uh, actors like viruses, like benign viruses and pa- benign pathogens that help you calibrate your immune system, but also avoid, you know, things like perfluorinated chemicals in your food labeling. So anyway, so I was just trying to synthesize all that as a parent with kids and trying to make sure that I was making good decisions so, about things. You, did you reach out to this group then to like help you with this fall fall rally or what? what, what no, sorry, sorry, I, I, I ramble, but um, I had brought no, them yeah. into to my school to talk about environmental exposures. And during that time, I was able to get air pure. This is before COVID. So I got our school uh, 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 air purifiers uh, for every single room because of the asbestos abasement and the environmental concerns that were coming because of the construction project. So when, when schools, you know, didn't quite open in September of 2020, I was like, well, you know, I, mean, I didn't really understand how the DOE worked. So this was very naive. I was like, well, our school can open because we already have. Oh, uh, you already had all the, the HEPA filters. You had everything. Yeah. Ready to open. Okay. Yeah. And, and they were they like, open? no, um, no. I mean, New York City schools opened on September 28th, 2020. De Blasio had to deal with the teachers unions. And um, I think it was delayed multiple times, but they eventually reopened at the end of September. But um, I, I kind of started with locally with my school. And when my school didn't reopen, I was like, what do we do? Who do we call? Do we call like Congress people, representatives? Like, I wasn't sure. And then somebody told me about a new Facebook group that had just started a couple of weeks ago um, called Keep NYC Schools Open. Maybe it wasn't even called that at the time. I don't think it really had a name. And um, I joined immediately. And right away, there was a talk on there of meeting up downtown, I think like in, I guess, early November, November 13th or something, 2020, to um, demand that schools open and stay open. That they, Oh, yeah, the school schools, sorry, schools were open at the time. But New York City had this arbitrary 3% transmission threshold that de Blasio said that if, you know, if we reach 3% transmission, then the schools would have to close again. So, so just, just, the, just so everyone's going on the timeline. So uh, schools are supposed to open like, well, like late August or something. They don't open. Early September, right after Labor Day. Early September uh, yeah. after Labor Day. That, uh, yeah. Then in uh, late September, they finally open. September 20th. Kids, yep. kids go back to school. That actually didn't happen in California. Kids didn't actually ever go back to school yeah. in, 2020, in 2020, basically, until late uh, in this academic year. But in, in New York City, they reopen. Kids go back to school. Um, if I remember the, the, the dynamics of, of transmission at the time, New York City had, had this massive wave in the spring, but they actually were kind of like they looked like, you know, Governor Cuomo had declared victory that they, you guys had conquered the disease uh, or somehow because of your hard sacrifices. And now you could reap the rewards of it by going back. You could go back to school. So they reopen in, on September 28th and your and your kids go to school. In a hybrid 
you know, fashion, right? So two days in, three days out, three days in, two days out. And other schools have like, it depended on how many kids enrolled in in-person learning um, because they still had to observe their six feet uh, social distancing in the classrooms. And, and they, they had also, to wear masks in the class also? They had to wear masks, six feet, which I think somebody measured and said actually was eight. And um, remember also every teacher who wanted a remote accommodation for that year, even if it was for something as simple as she's a smoker, um, got it. So many teachers had not returned. So there were a lot and, of limitations. And what was lunch like? And school breakfast like then? I mean, what did you, what, like I, I did, what, did, the, would the kids get in trouble if they were too close to each other? Would they, would the, yeah. would the teachers plastic things everywhere? Yeah, I think, I mean, there was hand sanitizer everywhere all the time. And personally, I never let my kids use that stuff because our hands are, you know, also have a microbiome and it's not healthy to keep killing it. Um, so hand sanitizer, sanitizers everywhere, um, air purifiers on, um, lunch, I, I can't remember. I think they did go into the cafeteria, but it was like, you know, very staggered. They couldn't sit next to each other. No socialization, obviously. I remember one of the bigger issues was that there was no um, snack time because the teachers didn't want them pulling down their masks in the classrooms. So oftentimes, like, you know, with, with older kids, there was a very long period between when they were dropped off in the morning and when their lunch period was. So they could not have a snack. But um, worse than that was no water. If you wanted water, <laughs> you had to step out of your classroom. You, you couldn't pull down your mask in the classroom. Okay, so um, I mean that sounds like a that sounds like it, it's almost like a facsimile of school rather than school. The emphasis is on infection control rather than learning. Um, but uh, you you mentioned this three percent threshold. Right, so as the fall wears on, uh, the the percent of of uh, like the cases start to tick up in New York City and everywhere, inevitably. Right, you don't. This is not a disease. <laughs> yeah, uh, this is. I mean, it's not a disease that, that's eradicable. Yeah. Um, and there are, uh, you know, like a, you you can talk about the 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 sort of the dynamics of it. Uh, you know, you you build up immunity, but that immunity declines over time against reinfection. Eventually, you're going to start to see, and of course, you get variants. Um, and so. The 3%, how long did that last before schools closed completely? Well, our first rally was November 13th. So I think at that point, we were imminent, We were about to close. I think we hadn't quite closed. We were like getting close to 3%. We were begging de Blasio not to close the schools. We all got together and, and rallied and got some you know local representatives there who said, yes, we support you. Schools should stay open. Um, so I think, you know, schools had stayed open from September 28th to probably around November 15th or something like that. So about a month and a half. And you now you're looking at this and the schools are about to close again. They already closed in the in the spring. And basically the, 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 the cases spread everywhere. It didn't really protect older people in New York. Huge numbers of older people had died already in New York City um, and in New York, despite the closed schools in the spring of 2020. Um, and now you're, you have a, you see that they're going to close again. You you help organize this rally. Um, now let's talk a little bit about the politics of this. Uh, were you surprised? Uh, was it, was it easy to get people to come out with, to, to like rally? I mean, this, you're deeply connected with the community here, um, including, you know, advocating for the schools before the pandemic and the kids before the pandemic. Uh, was it easy to get kids, the parents to come out and say, look, we really need to have our kids in school or was it, was it difficult? 
No, there were very few people at the rally. I, I was one of the people who came to the rally. I joined the Facebook group. Um, a couple of people that you and I both know started a Facebook group because they were concerned about school closures. And um, I showed up just like everyone else did. Maud Marin showed up, Yatin Chu, Daniela Jampel was one of the organizers and had previously organized a petition to keep schools open, a really well-written petition that ultimately got 16,000 signatures which isn't actually that much in, in a city of 1.1 million public school kids. Um, but no, the, the rally probably had like 60 people there. It was, it was not well attended. It was not well organized. It was really just grassroots. But and how about, how about like, the, like the sense in the community at large? Did you, were your friends generally in favor of open schools? Uh, no. No, they were listening. They wanted to keep their kids safe. Um, everybody was saying that their kids were thriving and remote. You know, many people hadn't even come back to school. Um, I live on the Upper West Side. Many people had left the city. They were perfectly happy, like in their country home or had made other arrangements and really, you know, had this, you know, feeling that it's okay. Like this is, this is, this is how we keep everyone safe. I remember reading a piece by David Zweig, I think it was the New York Times, about pod schools. Mm-hmm. About how, uh, like, how a lot of uh, high-income families had basically hired uh, teachers that had been basically, you know, didn't have much work to do in person because they the schools were mostly closed, um, and they would come and tutor a pod of kids. Yes, and uh, and it, you know, just the, the 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 inequality of that, like you basically are saying, we are not going to let uh, poor kids go to school and have these teachers, but we're going to let uh, richer people have these teachers teach their 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 kids. Uh, and that's going to keep everybody safe. It, it struck me as like a, such a deeply unequal, unfair kind of a, approach. It was, I mean, I call it trickle-down epidemiology, right? Like if, if, we, just, if we just keep the relatively well-off safe, um, that'll, that'll protect everybody. It seems Not to, be, to mention seems- the fact that the private schools opened. The private and the Catholic, I, I can't remember when the Catholic schools opened, but they did. The parochial schools, many of them opened, and the private schools were open. Yeah. Okay, so uh, this this rally happens. Now, you mentioned some local officials. W- wasn't Eric Adams the current mayor? Wasn't he also like a, 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 a like a local borough official at the time? He Did you was interact a, with him? He was the Brooklyn borough president at the time, and I had known him um, in his office uh, because he was very active with healthy school food. He marched with us across the Brooklyn Bridge in 2019, demanding healthy school food. He was a really big proponent because I think he lost a lot of weight and reversed his chronic diseases by becoming a vegan. So he's a big supporter of everyone, you know, having a plant-based diet. Um, So I reached out to his office and asked if he would join us at the second rally that we had, which was the day before Thanksgiving. So it was a couple of weeks later at Gracie Mansion, right in front of Gracie Mansion, because at that point, the schools had already closed. And he agreed, and he joined us. And, um, you know, he, we we had a very, very small group of parents. You ask if a lot of people turned out. No, they didn't. And to be honest, we weren't very good at getting the word out either. Like, how, how would they know to find us? I remember when we got there, I think there was more press than there were parents. But, um, how, did, you know, how did the press treat you guys? They were... They were Great. I mean, it was it was a local press. It was like ABC New York and, you know, Fox and maybe New York One. The New York Post always came. The New York Post always came. 
and so you had you had like you had you know some friendly presses, a small group of parents, uh, but you also had like some local politicians, even even like Eric Adams, who'd ultimately become mayor, in your camp, saying keep the schools open. Uh, how about Mayor De Blasio at the time? What was his? Did you have any interactions with him at the time? Because no, I remember uh, listening to him, and he just you know, sounded like he wanted to keep schools, you know, closed and abnormal forever. I mean, in his, I'm not a de Blasio fan or apologist, but in his defense, he wasn't dealing with the UFT, which, you know, the strongest arm of the AFT, like they they were calling shots. So it, it was hard to be too angry at him. He did seem to genuinely want to keep schools open. And we knew what was happening in California and, you know, Maryland and some of the areas where schools never reopened. Um, so we were grateful even for like the crumbs that we got. Okay. So, so now winter, winter and spring 2021, which has moved forward just a few months. Um, and uh, you, you file a lawsuit against de Blasio to force the schools open. You must have eventually lost your patience and said, okay, we have to do something, something more drastic. Yes, yes because they reopened schools for elementary school students, but they didn't reopen them. Well, they reopened the buildings for middle and high school students, but um, because of union negotiated contracts or something, these kids would still come into the classroom and they would have to mask. They would have to socially distance. They would have to live under like the most restrictive um, rules, and they would still be looking at a screen. The teachers were not in the classrooms because they deemed it inequitable to have some students in the classroom and others live stream. So they decided that even if the kids were coming to school, they were they were going to be staring at the same screens that the kids at home were going to be staring at. My, so my, my, my older son faced the same thing. Like they, yeah. he comes to, into school and one of the classrooms, the teacher is there behind a plastic shield looking at a computer. My son is one of the few people in the room uh, because the other ki- uh, many of the parents didn't send their kids to school. And he's basically told to sit behind his plastic shield and stare into his screen and not interact with the teacher at all in person. That was, the, that was what school looked like for a lot of, a lot of uh, high school kids and junior high kids in 2021, um, early 2021. So, so how did that lawsuit go? Um, well, uh, we filed an emergency injunction in April of 2021. Um, my lawyer, Jim Bermiguez, who had done a lot of school reopening lawsuits, sorry, not a lot of school reopening, uh, reopening lawsuits, like for the restaurant industry and, and, and gyms. Um, I helped had, him actually with a bunch of his cases as, an ex- as a pro bono expert. Yeah. Jim he, Bermiguez, yeah. He, he's amazing. He's really, he was very brave. Um, and so, uh, when he had filed, it was an emergency injunction. So he promised me, he said that the case would be heard within two weeks. Um, cause I guess that's what typical with an emergency injunction. It didn't get heard until July 28th, a month after school had gotten out by then. Um, although it did generate quite a bit of press. So I thought, I thought that was a success. Uh, I, I read, I read the New York times story about it. It was it, it was a smear job though, Natalia. Yeah. I mean, just honestly, like they were they they painted the desire to open schools as this like fringe uh, fringe thing where 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 you were a danger to the public, not you yeah. particularly, but like the, the the group that was putting this forward as a as a danger to the public, um, as, as if school reopening in spring of twenty twenty one, a full year after what we saw what happened in Sweden when they opened schools, you know, nothing bad. Uh, or that, or or Europe, where they open school, the full year after that, and the New York Times is still smearing parents that are 
advocating for open schools. Yeah, I mean, I think that continued into 2022. Uh, I, I had spoken to a reporter named Shira Frankel at the New York Times in the summer of 2022 and told her I was against uh, COVID vaccine mandates for kids. And she put me in an article um, calling me an anti-vaxxer. And uh, in the <clears throat> online version of the article, she tried to link me to a Stop the Steal Facebook group when, in fact, I had voted for Biden and remain a registered New York City Democrat. So, <laughs> I mean, the, 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 whole, the whole thing was, if you think about the politics of it, it really befuddles me, right? So you have a socialist government in Sweden, you know, a social democratic government in Sweden, from the very beginning of the pandemic, actually looking at the scientific evidence, saying, "Look, there's there's not a huge amount of risk to children from from uh, the from COVID, but a lot of harm that comes to children from keeping schools closed, keeping them out of school, having them have abnormal lives." And they keep schools open in spring of 2020, essentially doing the entire world a favor of showing what happens when you do that. What happens is no kids that they, they kept schools open for every kid under the age of 16, um, and what they found was that no kid died in the spring of 2020 from COVID. And the teachers actually had COVID at lower rates than the rest of the population. And this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. It wasn't like some fringe idea. This was a major country politically aligned, I think, much more closely with the American left than, than, uh, than, than, uh, than, you know, than the Trump administration. Um, and it was somehow characterized as a right-wing position to open schools. It should have just been a human position to open schools. It didn't matter your politics. Um, it really surprised me to see that, uh, and and then like any any group that spoke up against it was was essentially tagged as a political group as opposed to a a public health advocacy group, a childhood advocacy group, um, which is which is what it what which is actually what it was. Um, White supremacists. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm from I'm I was born in India. I don't I, I don't know. Where, I'm not sure how I get tagged as a white supremacist. Whatever. That's this is this. It's all just. It's the kind of thing that happens. I think that people people emotionally lash out when they don't actually have an argument, right? They assume automatically that the other side that has the better argument is is somehow evil or bad, and therefore they, you're, you know they're tricking us. Um, when in fact, what they should have done was was think in an open-minded way about what the evidence was actually saying. Um, okay, so... Well, where, uh, where were those talking points coming from? They were coming from the teachers' unions, as we found out. This was an opportunity to, you know, to bargain for more money and more resources than they ever had. This was never about health for them. And they convinced uh, black, the Black community that they were not safe back in schools and then use that as, as evidence that they shouldn't open schools. It's depressing to think about, but let, let's talk about the teachers' unions. Um, let's talk about Randy Weingarten and the AFT, because you've mentioned them a few times. Um, I was part of a debate organized by um, by a, 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 an open schools group um, with Randy Weingarten herself, um, and it was it was kind of striking because I I was debating with Tracy Tracy Bethog, who's a fantastic epidemiologist, common friend of ours. Um, and she, uh, she and I, uh, I mean, Tracy more than me even, she, she was just basically reciting chapter and verse from the medical literature about the opening schools. And, you know, we were, we were, uh, I remember like it was, it was Randy Weingarten. It was, uh, it was a, the former head of the AMA, um, this, this woman, Patrice Williams, I think is her name. Um, yeah. and then Ira, 
oh, I'm blanking blank on his last name, but there was essentially he was a he was a, a a political doctor that had been closely aligned with the Clinton administration. Uh, sometimes, uh, and uh, it was it was really striking that the uh, the 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 other side did not cite a single study during that entire debate. They just asserted uh, that, you know, in fact, insinuated that what we were arguing for was some political thing, when in fact what we were doing is we were citing the scientific literature that opening schools didn't actually cause mass harm and death. In fact, it, it was open safely. And I, we were also citing the, the evidence, which goes back long before the beginning, from before the pandemic, that schools were absolutely essential to the lives and the futures of our kids, both not just in terms of the educational attainment, but also in terms, and not just also in terms of the social attainment, as we talked about earlier, but also in terms of their future health. Right? There's, 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 for instance, in um, there's a, p- a fantastic paper that was published, I think, in 2005 or six by this uh, a professor named Adri- Adriana Laris Mooney, a fantastic uh, scholar. She, what she did is she compared places in uh, like the mid 20th century that had op- that had raised the age of mandated schooling from like 15 to 16, and looked at kids in those places, followed them for for decades, compared them against places sort of right next door that didn't mandate schooling an extra year of schooling and followed those kids for decades, essentially comparing them. And what she found was that that extra year of schooling, that mandated extra year of schooling had an enormous impact on the health of children as they aged into, into adulthood. Um, schooling is probably by far the best investment we make in our kids, both in terms of the, uh, of course, the labor market outcomes they get, but, but also in terms of their health. It is a public health intervention to have school. Um, and yet you had Randy Weingarten, the head of the AFT, saying it's that the schools are an unhealthy place. What what were they asking for? What what, what was the what was the what was your view of what they, what they were saying? I mean, you 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 mentioned that you thought that they were uh, that they were using the opportunity, the crisis, in order to get uh, to get longstanding demands that, that that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to get. Um, it seems like to me from the outside, it was they were doing that at the expense of children. And if you're if you're a teachers group, if you're a teachers union. I mean, you. I think you have a moral and ethical obligation to represent the well-being of children. That's part. That's your. That's your main job. That's why the public entrusts you with all, you know with all the all the resources it does. Um, so, what can you? Let's. Why don't we try? Why don't well, you tell me what I you saw? I don't think that they were representing the best interests of teachers or children. Um, also, let's let's remember that the AFT doesn't just represent teachers. They also represent nurses and healthcare workers. And they also have many, many, many retirees. Um, that's something that a, a friend made me aware of when I was trying to figure out like what makes them tick. Um, so it's not just teachers. I think it's a majority teachers, but there there are many healthcare that's workers. A good point. Yeah. So um, I think that um, I mean, to me, it was a power grab. Uh, we know <clears throat> that the teachers unions are one of the biggest donors to the Democratic Party. At the time, I didn't know that. Um, so, you know, they were looking for relief funds. They were looking to create smaller class sizes, reduce um, requirements for teachers to be hired, um, all of those things. But I, 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 don't actually, I don't actually think it was ever about health, either teachers or the students. Because I mean, the kinds of arguments they were making was, well, why don't we put in HEPA filters in every classroom? But it sounds like in your schools, they already had that. They did it all over New York City. They, they, um, New York City spent, I can't remember, billions of dollars on low quality HEPA filters. We have high quality ones because I got them donated from Blue Air, but that was just a, you know, a, a school thing. 
Um, but, but you know, know Sweden billions, billions Sweden, of Sweden doesn't have HEPA filters in its schools. I mean, it right, just opened probably have cool. opening windows, though. Yeah, um, you know, and, and it's, it's it's it was it was striking that that basically it seemed like they wanted they what they wanted was everything but opens here open schools, but only if you meet these fifteen demands. And you know, of course, they got their demands. They got trillions of dollars uh, in these the, the cares first the CARES Act and later in the in that Inflation Reduction Act. Um, much of it aimed at schools, and schools actually now are saying that they they spent it on a whole bunch of other things other than you know uh, air filter upgrades or what whatnot. Um, uh, it's it's striking. So like you know, and I remember uh, watching the influence that Randy Weingarten had on the CDC. You remember that? Uh, it was kind of striking. Like essentially, this I thought the CDC would be pushing for opening schools. Uh, I actually spoke with the former director of the CDC, Robert Redfield. He told me that that was one of his priorities, that the CDC uh, advocate for opening schools, so, so give give guidance to com- local communities so that people couldn't use the CDC as an excuse to close schools. And yet when the Biden administration came in and you had Rochelle Walensky come in to, pow- uh, to the, the head of the CDC, you saw them essentially rewrite their guidelines for school opening at the behest of Randy Gleingarten and the yeah. teachers unions. It was very yeah. striking. Um, like, why would the teachers unions have such a enormous impact on those school reopening guidelines? Shouldn't the CDC just be a public health organization that reflects the literature on public health, such as the evidence that was coming out of Sweden? Well, I mean, the first meeting that Biden had when he, you know, came into the White House was with Randy Weingarten and Becky Pringle, the heads of the two largest teachers unions. So I think that he was pretty clear immediately, like where he stood. Um, and, uh, and I think, you know, there's like a social activism component to this too, beyond the financial motivation of, of these union heads. I mean, I think it's very, from what I've read about the teachers unions, like these heads are very different than the ones that came before them, where they actually seem to care about the well-being of the students and the teachers. Now it seems like there's this agenda to turn children into social justice activists and also reduce the standards of, you know, the curriculum, both the math curriculum. I've been reading a lot about, you know, what's happening in California with math Um, here, you know, reduce class sizes, reduce screen school admissions, kind of make everything like a hodgepodge and and really make it very difficult for high achievers um, to, to, to achieve in school. Okay. So um, I'm going to, let's move forward just a bit and uh, let's talk about urgency of normal. Uh, which is this fantastic group that uh, that you were part of that, uh, that you helped found, I think, right? If I'm not if I'm mistaken, yeah. and re- and re- it's part of restore child and also restore childhood. You're, you're, yeah, th- those and um, uh, and a, a lot of that fight was over this. Uh, okay, we we've, we're letting bringing kids back to school. Uh, some places hadn't fully, um, but uh, when we bring them back, we are essentially telling them that they're biohazards, and we should reorganize all of society, of all of their life, their their social life, their educational life around the idea that they are biohazards. Um, so, tell us about first what was the agenda of, of urgency of normal? This group that included people like Tracy Bethog, uh, like like uh, Vinay Prasad, and and and, and some others, uh, and uh, some other very highly credentialed doctors and, and epidemiologists. Arguing that, well, why don't we just have normal school? Right. 
based on research. So um, in after the roundtable that you did with Randy Weingarten and Tracy Hogue, um, I had heard that Randy was very responsive to direct messages on Twitter and would consider meeting with someone or talking with someone if they reached out to her, you know, in a proper way. So I did. Um, I asked her if she would have a conversation uh, about unmasking the kids because I saw how much kids were suffering um, and how long it had gone on. Um, so to her credit, she agreed to meet up and we met uh, for a drink on November 7th, 2021, um, Marathon Sunday in New York City. And I, you know, me, like, no, nothing, nothing in my hands, nothing really to present her other than like, you know, a plea. Um, I asked her what it would take to to get the kids unmasked and, and to have schools go back to normal. And she said, bring me a proposal and I'll, I'll you know, like an unmasking, like a, an exit ramp proposal, an off ramp proposal, and I will share it with the CDC. What I mean, like what <laughs> like, me? Like, I'm going to bring you up. Fine. Okay. So the first person I called was Tracy. And I said, what do we do? Like, she's willing to humor us. I don't know if she's coming in good faith, but I I need to pursue this. What can we do? And And Tracy said, I don't feel comfortable with anything, you know, that has like an off ramp because anything that has an off ramp has an on ramp. Like this just needs to end. Like this needs to be treated like uh, a regular... Just so the audience knows, Tracy Beth Hogg was was the first author of a a study that was published by the CDC in Wisconsin, um, essentially like a a model for how how to open schools. Um, It was sort of spun as, oh, we have to have masks. Of course, they didn't actually have masks in the study. It was just how to how to open schools safely. So she's she's a, a highly credentialed, published uh, epidemiologist and author. She's an expert in this area. I mean, a, a legitimate expert, right? So you're, you're talking to one of the the, 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 the most important experts in the, in, in the world on school opening and masking. Um, so she's telling you, okay, we should, we don't need an off. This, this, this on-ramp off-ramp thing is ridiculous. It's just, we just need regular school, just like they have in Scandinavia. Right. And that's the other thing is she's a dual national Denmark and the United States and speaks like five or six languages. So she's reading like primary source material in the languages and newspapers like from Italy, France, you know, Denmark. Um, So there there's nobody better to talk about, like to talk to about this. And she says, I'm just worried about, you know, drawing any kind of paradigm that overemphasizes uh, ventilation or hand washing or whatever. We need to just stop. Like the kids just need to go back to normal. Well, you know, we kind of went back and forth for a few months. She assembled this incredible group of doctors um, to kind of help us figure out what to do. And then she, uh, Tracy met uh, Dr. Scott Balsitas, who is a doctor, a virologist out in the Bay Area, who had put together a toolkit, uh, which was called Urgency of Normal, and used data, uh, very meticulously sourced data, Um, explaining that the real pandemic for children was the mental health crisis, not COVID, and that we needed to return back to school, you know, as we knew it immediately and without haste. I remember seeing that and I was just, I I was absolutely thrilled. I thought, okay, you have this highly credentialed group of scientists and doctors that are given the, the chapter and verse evidence that returning to normal life for kids is possible and not just possible, absolutely essential. Um, and, uh, I, I was also, st- I mean, I, and I thought, okay, you, you, you're, you're not, you're not like a, a politically 
affiliated group. I mean, you're, you're, you have an, a, somewhat of an activist background, but you're not politically affiliated. You're, you're motivated by wanting schools open for the kids. You want active, you're motivated by wanting a normal, healthy life for kids. That came across clearly in the urgency of normal proposal. Um, and yet it was met with this, act, this, this sort of like visceral, I, I remember the nastiness on, on, on social media against uh, personally uh, the, the, you know, Tracy and, all, and Vinay and all the other folks who were advocating for this urgency, normal Scott, you, it was, really, it was really quite disturbing. And it didn't just come from random Twitter people. It came from some of the most, you know, some very, very highly credentialed uh, uh, people in public health, including, you know, people like Greg Gonzalez at Yale, who's a professor at Yale, uh, you know, a number of people who just would attack the urgency of normal idea in the most vicious terms, um, essentially imputing all kinds of nasty motives to you. Um, I mean, what was your what was your observations about that? Because like, I, I was I was disheartened by that. It, it was shocking. Um, and it, there were so many allegations of dark money. Um, but actually, there was no money, like zero. Um, the website was built by my husband who just did it, you know, at night for us because, you know, like on a Squarespace interface, it was, you know, it cost pennies to, to create. He didn't, he didn't charge, he didn't get paid anything. Um, a friend designed the logo for free because she really wanted her kid unmasked and returned to normal as well. Um, everybody just really did it for intrinsic, altruistic reasons. Nobody got a penny. And, and yet you know, there's accusations of Coke money. This happened to me when we wrote the Great Barrington Declaration. It's as if people don't want to, to grapple with the fact that there, are, that there are people citing actual high quality evidence who have the best interest of, of kids and people in mind. And if you disagree with them, that means that they must be funded by dark money interests, you know, con- connected with, with political opponents that are just obviously evil. Um, it, it's a way to essentially avoid having a actual conversation, actual you know grappling with the evidence, um, and it's a way of essentially smearing and destroying the reputations of anyone who speaks up against them. It was, and, and it was the fact that a lot of people in public health, and some of whom have real sort of high high positions in public health, uh, engaged in this kind of, uh, of 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 sort of smearing of opponents was really it's really just I mean public health is supposed to reach out to everybody. Right. Yeah. Uh, it, it's not supposed to be uh, this partisan thing. Uh, even even it's even supposed to reach out to the right. If the right wa- makes an argument in public health, it's supposed to it's supposed to treat those arguments with respect, even if they're even if they don't if you don't agree. Um, right. uh, you know, I, so it was it was it was really striking. And I don't, I'm, I'm curious what your response to that was, especially given your long history, as we, as we said during the during the beginning. Um, of, of of activism in public health settings for high quality nutrition for children. I mean, the, the allegations of dark money were so ludicrous, and the attacks were so coordinated. Um, I think there was an organization that sprung up right afterwards called Urgency of Equity, um, which you know also continued to attack us. And, and later, we saw in a New Yorker article that they had raised like half a million dollars. They actually had raised the money they accused us of raising. Um, my reaction was to you know just keep going. Um, I also thought that we should probably raise money. Like they tried to um, intimidate us as grassroots moms and, uh, you know, allege that we had dark money as well. And I think 
you know, I think there's nothing wrong with fundraising to, to achieve your goals. Like what does the teachers union do? Do they like have volunteers just doing these things for them? Everybody is paid. Like they have tons of money. So I, it didn't bother me as much as it did some of the others. Um, you know, we had doctors who were doxxed. I mean, they had careers on the line. So we had to proceed very, very cautiously because there were, you know, there were a lot of lives on the line and a lot of, you know, real personal trauma, um, you know, I, th- I think some of these doctors had never been treated this way or, or exposed in this way on social media, which was which made the thing made it much much worse. I mean, I, I you know I was sort of uh, at the time I was uh, I'd written the the Great Barrington Declaration with Martin Kuldorf and, and Sinatra Gupta in 2020, um, and we'd been smeared the same exact way, right? Allegations of dark money, this this political connections that we we didn't we didn't have. I mean, I was willing to talk to anybody. Um, I didn't have a particular political motive. Uh, Sunetra is on the on the left in the UK. Uh, she's a, she's a labor person. Uh, you know, she, I mean, I, so it was it was it struck and and yet we were sort of uh, you know painted as fringe figures by the head of the National Institute of Health in a way to sort of smear us and 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 sort of demean us. Um, and I when I saw the urgency of normal, my first reaction was I'm going to sign on. This is fantastic. Um, uh, and I, you know, I, 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 I but I, I was, I real, I thought, okay, if I do sign on, all of a sudden, you guys are going to get accusations. Of, oh, you're GBD connected, Great Barrington Declaration connected, and then have to face uh, the same kinds of things I faced with these crazy accusations of dark, of, of you know, Coke funding or or whatever. None of which was true. And I figured, okay, if I, if we stay away from you guys, um, not officially endorse. Although obviously there's a lot of a lot of reasons to to think that we were close, you know, yeah. uh, as far as our ideas were aligned, uh, that I could protect you guys to some extent from from this fr- frivolous accusation. But it didn't really matter, did it? Right. No, you, and you actually, the lesson out. I've learned from all of that is like come together as quickly as possible, be as open about what you want to say, stop self censoring, and urge other people to speak out because staying quiet for too long, not raising money fast enough, all of these things ultimately hurt you and, and, and destroy your momentum. So, you know, I mean, that was a huge learning experience for me. And me as well. Um, so, and in fact, we, we talked earlier about Daniela Jampel and uh, Eric Adams. Yeah. Uh, I want to highlight this as we as we come to the close of our thing, because so Daniela continued to advocate for kids in New York City. She was a, if I understand, uh, uh, like in the DA's office or something in in, in the New York the city, city, attorney, or, yeah, city, city attorney's, attorney's office, right? So she's she's like, and she's she's on the left, right? She's not like a, <laughs> she's not a, and so she and she's um been and she uh. Essentially, in a in a press conference with Eric Adams, who is now the mayor of New York City, this is the man who, when he was the borough chief, came out to this mask protest with you. Um, to open schools. To open schools protest with you. She, she asks him. She asks him uh, a question: Are you going to continue masking toddlers and ch- children? At the time, New York City is the only place I think in the country that's mandating toddler masking. In, I, I guess Head Start was still mandating it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, t- toddler masking the, in the United, the U.S. of course is the only crazy country that mass that requires masking toddlers because there's literally no evidence anywhere. The World Health Organization says don't mask kids. You know, they're not recommended to mask kids under six. The European CDC says no masking under twelve. Um, you recommends no masking under twelve, uh, and we're masking toddlers. So she asked a very reasonable question: Why are you masking toddlers? Why are you masking? Continue to mask kids. When are you going to take the mask off the kids? And then she's fired from her job as city attorney. Yeah, for, it was pretty, 
pretty horrifying. Yeah. Asking the mayor a question. Um, um, well, look at all the people who were fired in New York City for you know standing up for what they, what they thought was right. All the teachers who lost their jobs, and the firefighters, and the police officers, and the healthcare workers. So um, they they made their point. You know, if you oppose the narrative, that's what will happen to you. Okay, so uh, we're, we're on near an hour, so I want to just bring this to a close with some, maybe maybe a little more ha- like a, a little more th- of thinking about the future, and maybe hopefully some happy times. Um, where are we now? Right. So if if uh, if there's another pandemic, will uh, will there be a movement to close and, pu- and public health is pushing to close schools? What what kind of what kind of what will be different next time than this time? And let's say um, the evidence is saying that closing schools is not really a good idea. You know, we, we it's, there's a, a Sweden or some other country or, or maybe some part of the United States showing the school closing is useless for this new pandemic. What, what will happen this next time that's different than last time? That's a really good question. I mean, I think that the parents have been awakened, so I don't know what will happen. I I don't have a crystal ball, but I wish I did. Um, But I think that um, parents are talking to each other. They've been more vocal. There are many different parent groups, both, you know, in the center, on the right. You know, you see a Moms for Liberty, whether you agree with their politics or not. They're incredibly well organized. And I remember a few years ago when I first, you know, spoke to Tiffany Justice, they were not. They were like just a little grassroots group of, of moms. And she had asked me to join a podcast with her. And she said, I think you and I might be the only listeners. So, you know, I remember that time that we've come a long way. There's Restore Childhood. There's Parents Defending Education. There are groups all over the country. And we still have all the doctors who signed on to Urgency of Normal. There were over a thousand doctors and public health experts who signed on um, that you know, we can reach out to and, and, and connections that we have around the country that we previously didn't have. So I'd like to think we're more connected, we're more open to listening to each other, and we have pathways. Yeah, I think we, I agree with you. I think that we are much better organized. And I also agree with you that um, the, the the mistakes we made about, uh, the, the, I mean, inevitable, we, we, we didn't know each other. We've we become friends through this, through this experience, which has been really great, great for me. And, um, but I think uh, that those, those connections are going to be part of the resistance the next time, and the resist the, the resistance will be science based, rooted rooted in actual scientific evidence, even when the public health authorities are saying things that are very very plainly contrary to science. Now they'll finally have a pushback, and it'll come not in the form of a political organization, but rather a, this is this grassroots organization of parents of of of, of people deeply concerned about the well-being of children the well-being of 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 uh, of, of our our societies and uh with with a, with the very clear-headed idea that we can't organize our societies around the prevention uh, only the around the prevention of infectious disease we have to organize our societies around a much broader set of goals educating our children uh making sure that they grow up healthy and and uh and, and thrive uh healthy communities for our for our uh, like healthy Communities meaning of a broad notion of health for for adults, including social social life, no isolation, uh, family connectedness, uh, just a thriving community. That's much more important than just prevention of infectious disease. Prevention of infectious disease is important, but not the only thing around which we should organize societies. And at the root of all that, I think, is is your fight, right? Your Missouri versus Biden case is at the root of all this. If there is no free speech. If we can't say what we think, if we can't um, communicate, um, if we are afraid of being censored, then we're not going to be able to talk. 
So thank you for that fight. It, it's a fight that needed to happen. And you guys have done an incredible job, an incredible public service. Well, Natalia, thank you so much. I really appreciate your, your taking the time to talk with me. And also thank you for your advocacy and, and bravery, frankly, during the pandemic. Uh, you've done a world of good for, uh, for, for kids around the country. Uh, and a, a lot of the the opening and, and the, and the norm- normalcy of kids' lives now is, is, is attributable to the kinds of efforts that you and your colleagues put forward. And uh, please keep going. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Bye now.